So I was supposedly a weird child. I would wake up bright and early and go downstairs and turn on the TV so as not to wake anybody. And the only thing on, first thing on a Sunday morning, are the church programs. But in that corner was that oval with the interpreter. And I'd sit there and I'd watch that. My parents would wake up and they'd say, why are you watching that? And I'd say, I want to learn that. And they said, you're two. How do you know what you want to learn? And I said, I want to learn that. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. For today's podcast, we'll be hearing from Stephanie Burke. My name is Stephanie Burke. My PhD is in experimental psychology and linguistics. Just a moment ago, you heard Dr. Burke describe her very early introduction into the world of American Sign Language, or ASL. Nowadays, she is a postdoctoral researcher here at Washington University in St. Louis, where she's beginning to use neuroimaging methods to investigate ways in which the brain reacts to languages that you see rather than hear. But before we go any further, it's important to realize that the language that Burke so passionately wanted to learn as a two-year-old is not simply spoken English in a gestured format. In fact, American Sign Language, as well as other signed languages like French Sign Language and Italian Sign Language, are in many ways very separate from the spoken languages around them. Signed languages have their own vocabulary and grammar. For example, word order is more flexible in ASL than in English, similar to spoken Russian. Signed languages even have accents and regional differences. Here's Dr. Burke again. Just like there are accents in spoken language, there are accents in sign languages as well. I'm not quite so good at explaining what those are, but I can tell you that I went to a meeting this morning here in, in St. Louis, and they had a whole bunch of different deaf advocates from different deaf groups there, and I got to speak or sign about something, and the interpreter actually said, wait a minute, she's signing with like a New York accent. This is gonna take me a minute. And everyone laughed. So apparently, not only do I speak with a New York accent, because I'm from New York, but I sign with a New York accent as well. So except for the whole part about there not being any sound, signed languages are pretty much just like any other language. But when a language is seen rather than heard, what's going on in the brain? There's a lot of research trying to figure out if the same places in the brain that process a spoken language are used for processing a signed language. Because one could imagine that because it's in a visual space that perhaps the brain processes it differently. And most of the research is finding that the brain interprets language as language regardless of modality and is in primarily the same place or places. But the investigation hardly stops there. In many ways, understanding that our brains treat signed and spoken languages in much the same way opens up countless more questions. And these are the types of questions that interest Dr. Burke. For my own research, I'm looking at not so much trying to prove that American Sign Language is a real language and the brain processes it the same way. We've been there, that's done. Um, it's now time to move on and say, okay, knowing that American Sign Language is a real language, knowing that deaf people and deaf culture is fine and conducive to learning language, let's move past that. Let's see what the linguistics of American Sign Language can tell us about human language. 
and how the brain processes it, regardless of modality. Many of Burke's questions about linguistics and the brain center on language acquisition. In other words, how do humans learn languages, and how long does that process take? Many of us have had experiences with this in school as we struggle through vocabulary flashcards or listen to language exercises through headphones. So if you ask most people, is it hard to acquire a second language, they'll say, oh yes, if you're, you know, you wait past a certain age, it's really hard to learn a second language. I was really bad at learning languages. That's one whole field of research. And there is a lot of debate within that aspect of language acquisition, second language acquisition. The question that I'm interested in primarily is, what about first language acquisition? If you have a child who's not exposed to an accessible first language until they're, say, five, six, seven years old, is there enough neuroplasticity, is there enough brain power, if you will, to learn that language later than that age? Or is it, okay, use it or lose it? Normally, this type of thing is really difficult to study. Most people begin absorbing language as infants. And as Burke described, it would be totally unethical to stick a small child in a closet for five years, take them out, and say, hey, what do you speak? However, for some children, despite the best intentions of parents, this type of barrier to language has happened. There was a time in this country when newborn hearing screening was not mandatory. And so it was not uncommon for deaf children to be born to hearing parents, and the hearing parents didn't know that their child was deaf. And so they would try and talk to the child, they would feed the child, clothe the child, play with the child, talk to the child. But since the child couldn't hear anything, they were getting no accessible input. And then finally, when the parents realized these children were deaf, they said, uh-oh, now what? For many of us, the 1995 movie Mr. Holland's Opus might be coming to mind right about now. In the movie, Richard Dreyfuss's character doesn't realize that his son is deaf until he's a toddler. As Burke and many other researchers have found, real-life kids have had similar experiences. And in some cases, the child's deafness wasn't discovered until even later. For my dissertation work a number of years ago, I found two kids who before the age of six were misdiagnosed as low-functioning. The term then was mentally retarded. And no one knew that they were just deaf. And so they lived eight hours apart from each other. They weren't siblings. They had no one really to play with. The parents loved them, kissed them, hugged them, fed them, but never bothered to try and really communicate with them because the doctors had said, don't bother, they're not gonna get it. Finally, at the age of six-ish, they realized that these kids were deaf and they became fully immersed in American Sign Language at a residential school for deaf children. And so now, at the age of five or six, when most children are speaking or signing, they're using language well, these kids first had the task of trying to acquire their first language. So here's where we get back to language acquisition and the brain. Since these children began learning their first language so much later than their peers, would this affect their ability to use language? One question Burke has looked into involves verb agreement. So American Sign Language has three different types of verbs. And the two children who I was talking about, who I used for the study, they got two of those verb types without a problem. Easy peasy, they got it. And then there was one that they had problems with. And it didn't matter the first day I worked with those children, the last day I worked with those children, 
or if you look at adults who have been using the language for 20 years who were exposed to ASL late, they still had problems with that same verb type. And so it was kind of sitting in the back of my mind, what's another way of looking at these verb types? What's another way of looking at, well, how we can tell what's going on? And so I was hoping that if I can put native deaf signers in an MRI scanner, whereby they're doing a game or a task where they can kind of look at the different verb types, that maybe I can see what's going on between the different verb types. And then maybe I can play with it and say, okay, what happens if you're exposed, if you're exposed to ASL from at this age or this age, whereby there are different ages of acquisition. So what are the results? Do people's brains treat language differently if they were exposed to language later in childhood? The answer is, we don't know yet. But thanks to Burke and others, answers may be on the way. This is not an easy set of studies to do, and there aren't too many universities that are equipped to dealing with it. But here at WashU, you have Steve Peterson and Brad Schlager over on the medical school campus. You have all the facilities. And so if there was an ideal place in the world where I could do this research, it was right here at Washington University. And so my husband and I moved here about three and a half years ago now, in part so that he could work over on the medical school campus, and in part so that I could learn from Dr. Schlager and Dr. Peterson how to do this type of research. And I've just started now pilot testing this verb agreement task. And so hopefully, within the next two years, I will be able to have better answers for you but that is ongoing and I'm indeed actively using what I've been learning over the past three years with both the deaf community here in St. Louis. They've been absolutely wonderful and warm and accepting, as well as allowing me to start to answer questions that I've had. Many thanks to Stephanie Burke for contributing to Hold That Thought. For more podcasts on language and many more ideas to explore, visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu. That's holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also search for Hold That Thought on Facebook and Twitter and find our weekly podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and PRX.org.